Tijan. Welcome to Dan Le Coulis. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you uh, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to getting into this conversation. And one of the reasons I am um, so keen is that I heard the conversation you had with Future Africa in June. And among many of the keen insights you shared in that conversation, in that dialogue, you had a pretty strong opinion about the terms uh, used to describe French-speaking Africa, which I think sets us up well for a very nuanced conversation about venture opportunities in the region. But mm. before we get into that, because there's a lot to get into, I want to um, learn a little bit more about you. So um, you may or may not share this opinion, but I think to some extent the world of VC has become pretty social media driven. So long threads on Twitter about what's what seems to be part of the job description. Uh, so, but from your perspective or in your case, what's the most interesting venture related thing you're currently tweeting or posting about and why do you think it matters? Perfect. Perfect. So um, yeah, so I do, I also have uh, a blog, um, tjohnwatt.com uh, as a little plug. I mean, the name, the, the domain is there, so why not grab it? You know exactly. I mean? um, so I uh, actually just wrote something down today about um, something that a friend of mine told me. It's, a, it's an interesting story. So he's um, at one of these global giants in Silicon Valley, and he's the head of infrastructure investing for them. So mm. all of their fiber optic cables, the submarine cables, everything, he's the, the head of it. Wow. Basically, what he says is that uh, demand is never the problem. There is unlimited demand. And if you think about, you know, the need for bandwidth, you can understand why. Right. So as more and more young people are getting their first phones and they're hitting the YouTubes and the Instagrams and the demand will be there. Um, And so actually, I think that that extends um, to everything in Africa. And that's that's like I keep referring to this statistic, which is the. uh, the FDI per capita. So FDI as a proxy for investment because there's also domestic investment, but FDI per capita in Africa is $34. <laughs> and that's relative to uh, $326 in Asia and $1,200. Mm. So it's almost as if, and I, I made this comment before, it's almost as if you know, the, the powers that be decided that you know, every African is worth $34 of investment. It doesn't seem like enough. And guess what? It's not. It's not enough. Um, and if you, if you realize that even though, you know, there's been over a trillion dollars of investment in basic infrastructure in the past 10 years, uh, it's still not enough. You know, most people didn't expect uh, that cities in Africa would become megacities. Like where I live in Dakar, Senegal, you know, they probably thought, oh, you know, it's going to max out at 800,000 people or something like that. But we're up at 5 million. Uh, Nairobi, 10 million people, obviously Legos, you know, you can't even imagine. Um, and so the reason that we're having traffic jams and flooding and all that kind of stuff is because they underestimated the demand. They underestimated the demand. And I think that that's something that is generalizable in Africa. In the, in the, the, the piece that I wrote, I mentioned Transion, Transion, I don't know how you say it. In, uh, which is basically the maker of techno. Right. So it's the biggest mobile phone manufacturer for Africa. And I say for Africa because it's a Chinese company. It's, uh, it's, it's, right. it's publicly listed in China. Um, and, you know, they're, they're actually delivering more mobile phones to Africa than to North America and Europe. So that's almost a missed opportunity. That's like there could have been a startup 
in, you know, in, uh, I don't know, yeah. South Africa or something. And the investors would have brought the money and they would have met that demand. But uh, I guess people didn't have the belief yet. Fortunately, uh, and, uh, you know, to their credit, Transient did have the belief. They, they've seen, you know, the explosive growth in, in China and other places. Um, so they were like, yeah, it's going to grow in Africa too. Um, so that's something that's uh, it's been on my mind. And um, so anytime you're, you're hesitating, oh, you know, will there be enough, you know, demand? Just don't hesitate. There will be, right? <laughs> and that extends to everything from air conditioning. Like, it's, you know, it's hot in Africa. So guess what? <laughs> As people, you know, move up the stack, they're going to want air conditioning in times 54 countries and over a billion people. So um, that's, that's a basic thing. Um, mobility. Mobility. The demand for mobility. Imagine, you know, a young person just turned like 21, getting their first job, has to, you know, get on the bus to go to work multiplied by 50 million of these young people across continent or more. And that's putting intense pressure on mobility and people are buying two wheelers. You know, there's this, um, you know, we're really, uh, I'm passionate personally about um, electric mobility and I am as a fund, we're actually looking at it because it is, um, it's going to happen. I mean, I, I don't know how else to, to say it. Electric mobility is cheaper. It's more cost effective from an operating perspective. We already have problems with sky-high costs of fuel. And, you know, these vehicles are actually simple. They're very simple. It's an electric motor, a battery, and then, you know, some wheels or something. Some people's first vehicles will be an electric vehicle. It'll be another leapfrog. Mm. Um, you know, they'll never have had have owned their own car, but then they're going to get an electric two-wheeler or something. Um, so, yeah, so anyone thinking about manufacturing electric uh, vehicles for Africa, don't underestimate that demand. And so that's that's the theme. That's uh, the theme of the piece that I wrote. So I'm obviously going to have to check it out. I'll definitely link it in the show notes. This is really fascinating. So you dove right into the deep end, which I love. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna follow your, your, your lead here. So three kind of signposts, I, I think, for thinking about the venture opportunity in Africa and uh, Francophone Africa specifically, and we'll get into the terminology that you kind of you kind of highlighted <laughs> that you highlighted here that are really interesting, and I haven't heard them expressed like this before. So you mentioned unlimited demand, and part of the reason I think that's interesting is uh, you know my own limitations. So part of what trips me up about the venture story, as grafted from Silicon Valley, is the idea that demand is supposed to come from essentially rich consumers or consumers with a good amount of purchasing power who are readily able to take fully like fully digital fully tech solutions and these solutions are being provided by startups that get sort of unlimited uh well okay not unlimited but unlimited access to capital so the idea of unlimited demand is super interesting you also pair that with belief which i think is really interesting and part of the reason I think is interesting, because in some previous conversations, we talked a little bit about intuition. So this is the idea of having a hypothesis. But before the numbers show up, you have to lean into a view of the world that you think is going to be proven in numbers. So you mentioned belief and then you mentioned leapfrogging. I know people are tired of talking about leapfrogging in Africa, but the idea that the first vehicle is going to be electric. So all of that to say, how would you, as the founder managing partner of Worry, translate that into your, your investing thesis? 
and why you think uh, these opportunities are robust. So you started to lean into it already. So if you could just explain a little bit more and flesh it out for us. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's how we, uh, we like to invest. We, we invest on the basis of thesis. So my, I guess my first introduction to investing in Africa was in private equity. So after business school in about 2007, I went to Nigeria. So I, my first job was in Nigeria. There was a guy named uh, Osazi Osifo. Uh, he since uh, passed away, but he uh, did a really great job of bringing people back to the continent. And he must have encouraged, you know, 40 or 50 people to come back um, wow. and to dedicate their careers to the continent. So, you know, shout out to Osazi. So I worked at this private equity shop. And, you know, um, it kind of was revelatory. I learned a lot about how to invest and also learned about how I would not like to invest. Uh, And, you know, um, there's this kind of expectation amongst funds that that you focus on a sector or that you focus on a geography or you focus on this. Exactly. Uh, But that's that's just kind of like a rule of thumb. Like, Mm. okay, prove to me why. I mean, there's, there's probably some good arguments on both sides. But in, from my perspective, the sector basis is, is risky to the extent that the sector goes away. <laughs> so at the beginning, uh, when I was in Nigeria in 2007, the telecom revolution was kind of plateauing. You know, we can't forget that in like telecoms in Africa started in like the late 90s, you know, mm. early 2000s mm. with Mo Ibrahim, um, you know, people speaking of unlimited demand. So Yeah, exactly. You know, he, I think they raised uh, 400 and just under $450 million. And at that time, there were like 14,000 phone lines in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. And people were like, you know, <laughs> okay. But some people took the journey with Mo Ibrahim and uh, they, they did it, you know, ramp, ramped it up to 65 million people. So you go from 14,000 people with phones to 65 million people with phones. And so that was like the early, uh, early aughts, early um, 2000s. What's interesting about that is that at the very same time as telcos were like just racking up hundreds of millions of users in the West, they were going bankrupt. So if you think about, you know, maybe these are old names that don't like exist no more. Uh, MCI, <laughs> WorldCom. Yeah. Uh, these are all companies that went kaput because they overinvested in in uh, the West, uh, you know, subsea, uh, you know, cross-Atlantic submarine cables, there were so many of them that they just competed each other to death. Meanwhile, in Africa, you know, the, the valuations were going through the roof. So there's, uh, there's one fund called Africa Capital Alliance, uh, their first fund, yeah. uh, which, you know, I was at a conference and the, the head of the IFC's um, fund of funds uh, area said that that was the best performing fund of all time across the whole IFC portfolio of hundreds of, of funds. Wow. And it was all on the strength of an investment in MTN. In, in wow, that's wild. Yeah. And so that's to say that telco was hot, but in 20, 2009, it's no longer hot. And you become the fourth entry into a country offering telecoms in a business where there are network effects, you're going to come up short. So that's long-winded. Uh, sorry about that. But, but yeah, there's um, so sector-based investing is risky because it gets stale. So what we do is we refresh our thesis every year based on what we see. You know, I've been living in Africa since 2001. And, you know, based on what we use, you know, stuff that we use, uh, the things that we see in the market, that's what informs our investing. And I think it's important. And that's why we think it's important that, you know, we, we promote and support 
locally based investors because right. you know we're using the stuff. And you know when you have uh, kind of global investors, that's good. But you need you know you need people on the ground that experience that understand the markets in a more intuitive way. The other thing is geography. I think um, uh, you know some people are really stuck on. Uh, specific geographies. I think, um, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit, you just go down by GDP. And, okay, Nigeria is number one. Yeah. Uh, and then, oh, right next to Nigeria, you have got, so it's a little bit um, simplistic. I think what we're seeing in terms of the successful companies in Africa, and I don't just mean startups, the successful companies are all over the continent because guess what? There are 54 countries. So <laughs> I was, I was on a, uh, I was on a call with a friend of mine and his daughter came and wanted to, you know, uh, ask a question. He said, "Oh, go go watch the the, the DSTV." So uh, like yeah. the, go watch the DSTV. Like that's that's his treat that he can give to his daughters. Watch the DSTV. Right. And DSTV multi choice is all over the continent. It's forty or fifty countries. You know, so that's a model. Uh, Echo Bank is in thirty four countries. Yeah, uh, in thirty five countries. So that Pan African kind of viewpoint, uh, multi country operations, is the way business succeeds in Africa. And so if, if a fund says that they have to focus on this geography because of this or that, it actually misses those realities to some extent. That's why we've been a little bit more flexible in terms of being a Pan-African investor and focusing on areas that are, come from our thesis, not necessarily uh, some, some category that, that you know, we want to bucket ourselves into. I think this is probably a good point to kind of bring in the Francophone Umoa case, right? Because there are reasons or there are places where scale might be enabled due to the economic structures of, of the region. So maybe talk us through a little bit about how you see opportunity in the UMOA region and to what extent or how the way it's structured um, enables scale and venture type opportunities. Okay. I mean, um, I think uh, uh, you're going to get me started, but I'm going to try to keep it uh, <laughs> politically correct. Um, so I think, um, first of all, I like the idea of rebranding Francophone Africa as much as, you know, my parents met in France. I would not have been here if my mother from the United States didn't meet my father from Senegal in, uh, in Grenoble in France. That being said, it's no longer France. It's now Africa. Mm. And I, I want to give a shout out to the people from the UMO zone, the Union Economique et Monétaire des États de l'Afrique de l'Ouest which means that these countries from West Africa and Central Africa came together and sent their ministers and worked to, do, to create a common economic zone. That's a lot of work. So I want to give, first give a shout out to those people that did that work to put in place the legal structure such that all the countries can be kind of together. So the UMOA, it's a common currency. That's one, right? That's like the euro. Think about the euro. When I finished at Goldman Sachs um, in 2000, that was when the euro came into existence. Before that, mm. it was like dozens of different you know, currencies in Europe. Um, so the fact that we have these, this, this single currency zone is, a, is an accomplishment. Sometimes if I, I remember, I, you know, if I fly to Mali or I go to Cote d'Ivoire or whatever, I have some, some Senegalese money in my pocket is just as good. Mm. And that's pretty cool. Right. Um, you also have a common exterior tariff. So basically, you can export something from Cote d'Ivoire to Togo to Benin to Senegal, mm. and it's no tariff. So it's, it's it, so that's that's huge. There's also a thing that's actually pretty cool. If you want to nerd out, I feel like I'm nerding out big time on, the, Go on this for stuff. It. There's a thing called the OHADA, which is the right. um, Harmonized Legal Framework. So commercial commercial law. So if you want to understand how 
commercial law will work in Mali, uh, and you know how it works in Senegal, it's the same because it's the same legal uh, uh, structure. Um, I think that's that's. I mean, can you imagine the work that it would take to 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 harmonize uh, a legal framework across eight different countries and get that ratified? That's that's work that these people have done, and we should uh, we should we should recognize that. And then finally, the most important part. You know, politics is, you know, politicians will be, it doesn't matter. You're in the United States, Donald Trump. Donald Trump does not surprise me because of, I've lived in Africa. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is like, there's nothing surprising about Donald Trump because politicians, uh, you know, they do what they do. They try to, you know, get reelected. They have their own set of incentives. And one thing that helps them to get elected is, is um, using and spending money, mm -hmm. right? So they're going to spend money on this or that. Could be a good project, could be a, a, a bogus project. But if they don't have the money, guess where they're going to get the money? They're going to call up the central bank. And that's where right. we get runaway inflation. So in places, in some countries, uh, in many countries, I would say the vast majority of African countries, the central banks are under the president. And that ain't what you want because the president wants to spend that money. And if he doesn't have enough, they will print. And when you print money, um, you know, I read a, an article in Business Day in Nigeria, which is kind of cool. I can read a newspaper. Nigerian newspaper, uh, and this um, Mr. Peter Side, I think the founder of Stanbic, said that you have the money supply. So if you have a given amount of money, and then because you print it, you've doubled the amount of money. Basically, the same uh, money has half the value because you mm. didn't create a new economy. It's just like you just created more paper. So you have more paper chasing the same unit of the uh, economy, and that's inflation. That's what we're having in places like Nigeria and Ghana is that the, the, the federal governments are borrowing from the banks. Banks are not really lending to the economy. They're lending to governments. The federal governments are borrowing from the banks at negative real interest rates, which means that the interest rate that the, the banks are getting is less than inflation. So the, bank, the, the federal government repays money that is worth less you know, because, because of inflation. Wow. And I think they're doing that to some extent uh, intentionally and using inflation as as a substitute for taxation. They're not able to effectively tax the economy and to generate revenues from the economy. And so they're using this inflation mechanism, which is a tax. Inflation just taxes everybody, just reduces everybody's wealth. And so in the UMR, we don't have that because the central bank sits outside of any one country. The headquarters of the UMR, of the BCL, the, the central bank is in Dakar, but the governor sits in Cote d'Ivoire. Like there's no one country that will dominate the central bank. So if, uh, you know, if Macky Sall from Senegal wants to print money, he calls us the central bank governor. The central bank governor would be like, listen, let me just check with Alassane Ouattara and all the other presidents. And that mechanism keeps the money supply in check. And for me, that's the number one. That's why I did write an article about the importance of the CFA franc. There was people calling for, you know, its abolition. I said, no, it's not about the name. It's about the mechanism. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, it's awesome that we have pulled that off. So in a, in a place um, relative to countries where you're experiencing double-digit inflation, even 20, 30% inflation, right. I think Ghana had 30% inflation like a couple months ago. Uh, the UMO's official inflation rate has been 2% for hmm. the past um, 30, 40 years. And that, that makes a difference, uh, not to mention, okay, the currency peg, but current, you know, currency and inflation, they go together. So if you have low inflation, you also will have a stable currency as well. So yeah, that's for me, we need to be talking about that and not the fact that, you know, uh, okay, we used to be a French colony. 
Um, not to mention in a place like Senegal, if you don't know how to speak Wolof, you're not reaching the people. Like, frankly, like I, when I came here, uh, you know, I spent a month in uh, Aix-en-Provence uh, trying to beef up my French. And then when I started my business, I had, uh, my, I had launched my first business when I was 25 in an FMCG space. All of my customers spoke either Wolof or Pular. And these are wholesalers that were capable of giving me $500,000 in cash to buy some sugar. Mm-hmm. Right? And, oh, they're, by the way, they're also illiterate. Well, they're not literate because they're writing in Arabic. So they're not illiterate. But they don't, they never like bought into the whole French system. Right. So if you want to really fully, uh, you know, penetrate the economy in Senegal, at least, you have to address the, the people in their own languages. You know, I, as much as uh, French is the official language of, of, of a lot of these countries, the lingua franca, it could be, well, it could be, um, you know, in DRC, it's Lingala. Uh, you know, in, in East Africa, it's Swahili. Like, if you do an, an ad on TV or like on the, a big, big billboard and you try to use like, you know, French or English, it, it doesn't really sound right. You know? Right. You know, using Pigeon English, you know, in, a, in, a, in some sort of in an ad in Nigeria, it doesn't hit the same way. Right. So there are so many points I want to come back to here. So I want to come back to the story of how you launched your business, because I think there are important lessons to to learn here. But since we're already on the on the topic of the I'm just going to call it the fiscal macroeconomic foundation created by Umoe. So you mentioned the shared currency. You mentioned the accompanying sort of external central bank, the result of low inflation and the shared legal framework in, in the form of OHADA, which I mean, these are very, very robust, I think, <laughs> pieces for doing business. So let's bring it back to Ray Ventures. So with that as a starting point, going from macro to micro, what does this look like on, on the ground? Because you mentioned, hey, we're not focused on geography. We're not focused on sector. We're focused on thesis in this backdrop. So what does that mean? What is the nature of the, of the opportunity? You can draw from your portfolio, if you like, to sort of contextualize and give an example. I'll give an example of one in East Africa. It's uh, lorry systems. It's kind of a low-hanging fruit, which is Uber for trucking, so to speak. The way I think about that is that uh, in the, the, this construct of this notion of market failure, which is, uh, it's, it's like, um, so there are certain categories of situation where the market fails. So the classic example of that is uh, the Akerlof lemon problem, which is um, information asymmetry. So if you're going to go buy a used car, you expect that the guy is going to give you the, the bad one, the lemon. Exactly. <laughs> And therefore, you're like, I don't trust you. So guess what? I ain't going to buy nothing. So nothing happened because of this information gap. Right. Information asymmetries is an example of a market failure where no market, no transactions will happen because there's something going wrong. So I even think that in the world of fintech, uh, you know, the fintech revolution is real, but it's not only about finance. It's about information asymmetry. So if I'm a bank and I don't know so-and-so living in, in Benin, I'm not going to lend to them. But when you have more information about your, the other person, now you can kind of do business. And so really the fintechs have the identity issue is what they have solved for. And that's what enables that market. Uh, so going back to Lori, um, there's also you know, fragmentation. It's not quite a market failure, but it's like this notion of, of a public good. So you know, the roads, you know, uh, a, a park, Security, um, the monetary system, uh, these are all examples of, you know, 
the clean air and water, you know, this is, these are public goods. No one person can, has the incentive to do it. Like, um, I used to live in this neighborhood in, in Senegal called Nyaritali, which is like, uh, Cartier Populaire means it's super packed with people. Like, you know, it's not boring. Like it, it doesn't matter what, what time of day you go there at like 11 at night. It's always people walking all over the place. It's so, right. and that's where my grandmother lived. But the thing is, Nyaritali means two streets. And so there was, uh, so in between the two streets is a free-for-all, it's a commons. And so I don't care how wealthy you are. And in fact, uh, the former president of Senegal, Abdelaywad, his family house is there. Mm. There were no one person can go and clean up after 300,000 people. Right. And that's an example of a commons. Therefore, it's the role of the government to step in. And guess what? We know about <laughs> some of the governments, they're not able to do that or they don't do it. And that's a market failure. So- um, and so this is a little bit academic, but uh, that's the way I look at lorry systems. No one trucking company wants to have a website that's going to enable people to do comparison shopping, right? If I'm a truck company, I own 10 trucks. I own 10 trucks. I'm a trucking company. I'll do a website for myself. Right. I'm going to do it for everybody else. Right. And so essentially, uh, lorry systems is a centralized public good, quasi-public good, for the whole trucking industry and makes all the trucking industry work. It's kind of like kayak. But so, so that's, that's how I'm looking at things. It's not about, it's about microeconomics. A lot of, you know, a lot of people think that VC investing is about tech or about whatever. A lot of times it comes down to microeconomics, not even macro, but micro and the, the kind of dynamics that cause markets not to work or cause markets to work well. So a network effect, you know, the reason why we all use an Instagram it's a great product, technology, blah, blah, blah. But it's also a network, right? Everybody's on the same common platform. And that's a microeconomic exactly. phenomenon. There are several really interesting things um, that, have, that are coming out of what you said. So I think the first thing to maybe dig into a little bit is this idea of the network effect. Um, I'm going to call it infrastructure building. In the sense that some uh, research I contributed to chasing out outliers on African VC and tech, sort of one of the things that we heard a lot from investors and founders is that they do a lot of infrastructure building. So, you know, maybe, you know, they, the intention was to help mom and pop shops order supplies or something or, or manage their inventory. And then they figured out, oh, well, so now they have issues getting inventory. And so now we have to build a supply chain. So my question, because you mentioned that, you know, it wasn't a walk in the park, I'm going to assume that it's not a walk in the park if you're an in infrastructure builder. So the question is, how do you translate those challenges into venture scale opportunities? Because they're not Instagram, you know, uh, they're, they're heavier, you know, there's actual stuff in, or physical things involved. So we call this the real economy. So we have like four pillars. So our four pillars are liquidity of the capital markets, even in the, in the startup sense. So there has to be enough like investors, you know, you know, looking at a company, that's liquidity. Second is the real economy. So we're not doing Instagram for Africa or Twitter for Africa or anything like that, because those business models are supported by advertising and advertising markets are not big enough. Um, they're probably pretty big, but they're not as big as the real economy market. So, um, so a trucking market, moving cement or sand or whatever, it's actually generating real money. In Africa, Achaleke's book, McKinsey, says that there's $4 trillion of right. money sloshing around in the economy from businesses and consumers. So that's the real economy that you can capture 
And technology, what it does is it gives a source of competitive advantage. It makes you better. And we've seen that in Amazon. Amazon crushing everybody because of technology. Um, and so that same thing is happening across all of African sectors. So we, real economy, multi-country scaling, and leapfrog, these are the kind of the four basics that we look for in a, in a startup. So you, you also mentioned um, when you were talking about the Africa opportunity, the Pan-African opportunity, broadly speaking, you mentioned that one of the problems with focusing on a sector is that they kind of go out of fashion, for lack of a better way of putting it. So obviously, if you're in the game for 10 or 15 years, that's not a good play to make. So how do you sense whether a trend or a theme is durable or not? I mean, if it's not a sector, how do you know that whatever it is you're spotting is going to be around in 20, 50, whatever, however many years? That's an interesting question. I think um, it's, it's a good one as well. I mean, I think that for me, it's perhaps based on my intuition and my having observed the African markets um, uh, over the past 20 years. And there have been interesting business revolutions. There have been a lot. So one of the first ones, which I think is pretty interesting, a tiny story. So when I first got to Senegal, I wanted to do groundwater drilling. I wanted to be, you know, in, you know drilling groundwater. It just made I liked it, you know? Yeah. And so my father's good friend, He's a Ghanaian from, you know, Cornell Engineering. He had a groundwater company. So I went to Ghana to, you know, to do an internship basically over there, like a one month experience in Ghana. And what was, I learned a, a, a ton um, just comparing Ghana and Senegal. But one thing I, I, I noticed is that, so Ghana had just experienced a little bit of a devaluation. And so I went to the shop to get some bottled water and the imported bottled water, I think it's like, one of them is called Voltic and one of them is called Voltic. Uh, they both sound similar. Um, but the, the, the Voltic, which I think is the imported one, was like 900 CDs. This is before they revalued the CD. And then the, the local bottled water was 100 CDs. And I said, oh, so when you have devaluation, the local doesn't have to increase in price. So I came back to Senegal. And I said, listen, I'm going to start this bottled water company. Because I thought at that time, the bottled water that we had was imported. So there was a new a company called Kiran, really pretty bottles. And I was like, oh, this is important, clearly important. Come to find out, you know, one year prior, a, a Senegalese company had launched uh, and it's a, local, it's a local bottled water. So I, that kind of scuttled that plan. But bottled water, because of its uh, resistance to global imports, is a, a pan-African phenomenon. Any country has a bottled water leader that those margins are 70, 80 <laughs> percent. It's just selling water. Um, and those are great businesses. And that is like dominoes in each, uh, in each African country. So that's a, one of those revolutions. The other revolution is telco, obviously, right? Telecoms was, you know, as much as the investors at that time, they called themselves private equity, but the types of returns that they were getting is venture capital returns. So I remember, I think it was uh, ECP, one of my colleagues had worked at ECP and he shared the portfolio of the, of the ECP's, ECP's uh, performance and, you know, their investment in Sonatel gave them a 26x return. I said, this ain't, you know, the, you know, the PE returns are like one to 2x. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So I'm like, you call yourself PE, but this is VC. So that's the first VC uh, success case is Telco. And, you know, it yielded incredible returns for those funds. And it, it didn't last forever. Didn't last forever. So, you know, to your point, the staying power, you know, if you're not one of the first in, in like, if you're not one of the first in bottled, bottled water, like, 
Keenan has fended off so many competitors over the past 20 years. Like, for some reason, it's hard to compete, like, in bottled water. You know, they're making, like, revenues, I think, is something like they're selling 100 million uh, bottles of water every year, right? So wow. Times, like, you know, a dollar, dollar fifty. That's, that's real money. And it's 90% margin, right? It's water. Um, so, but if you're not first, then, you know, you're not going to be able to displace the, the leader for some reason. And so the revolution after that, after telco, is fintech, mobile money. Um, I actually had a business plan. This is like, for all those people that want to go to Harvard Business School, <laughs> don't, you know, just don't scrap your dreams for, for, for that. Like, so I had, a, I had a business plan called Portab Pay, Portable Pay. You're going to get a call from the alumni committee. I might have to edit that part out. <laughs> I know, that's all good. Hey, it's all good. Until they start investing, the Harvard management company needs to start investing in African <laughs> 100%. Yeah, so I had a part, I had a, a business plan in 2005. I had already started my first company. This was going to be my second company, Portable Pay, in 2004, 2005. I full business plan, all kinds of stuff, and I decided to, you know, someone said, "Oh, that'll always be there." You know, you just go to business school, as if business school won't always be there. But, um, but yeah, mobile money uh, at that time it had not started. In, in, in mass. And then you have M-Pesa, which kind of just, just shows everybody the, the roadmap. And then boom, you know, right now we're dealing with $697 billion of volume in 2021 and 520 million uh, users of mobile money. That's a revolution. And we actually just recently closed an investment in Wave, which is Senegal's first unicorn. And Wave is actually, it's interesting, a, a fast follower strategy. So they're not the first, they're coming and just kind of beating up on the in- incumbent telecoms who are kind of like sitting there like with their little quasi-monopolies. Right. Um, but yeah, so the point is I've kind of seen a lot of these revolutions. For me, the next one, the next one is electric vehicles. Mark my words. Electric vehicles is the next revolution. So for me, uh, you know, it's just kind of like intuition and, and spotting trends. Right. So I think part, uh, like a small part of, of what I'm picking up here is maybe the concept of infrastructure as a moat. I mean, I'm kind of guessing that part of the reason why beating out the, an incumbent water company is hard is because not only have you invested in literally building the supply chain, it's kind of like uh, relationships and getting to a point where you're working on economies of scale and such. So if you build all of that out and you invest in in all of that, it's going to be kind of hard to recreate your own rails and replicate that level of systems-oriented business building to some extent, which kind of leads into my next question, which is more about exponentiality, because you said part of the argument for Pan-Africanism is big markets bring big capital, and we're going to talk about capital in a second. But the question is then, how? but how do you then know that this durable opportunity is going to yield exponential results? I mean, that's the game, right, I guess, in VC. But since these this circumstances are a little bit different, how do you know? Or how can you sense that you have an exponential opportunity on your hands? First of all, what I like about the VC approach relative to other previous types of investment approaches in Africa is that VC is, is a tolerant to risk which means that it kind of has a built-in structure where like a third of the investments will go to zero. A third of them will kind of be the 1x and then a third of them will be more than 1x. And so if you have a couple of hits in your portfolio that do 20x or something like that or 10x, that compensates for the 20 other ones that kind of lost. So if you have 20 investments, 
one investment does 20x, it covers all the losses. And what that means is that you can take risk in venture capital, whereas in other business, model, you know, business um, investment approaches, sometimes in private equity, they're, they're targeting like 1.75x return. This is Africa. It's like <laughs> things are risky, right? Things are risky already. So the ability to tolerate risk is something that's interesting. So what enables that is what you're talking about, this uh, you know, exponentiality, which generate the super returns. So I guess exponentiality could be that when there's mass adoption of something. Um, so it's, you know, we do look, you know, when we talk about leapfrogging, we're talking about um, people adopting technologies. So Africans, I like to say they're pragmatic adopters of technology. And which means that they adopt it when it saves people, that saves them money. <laughs> like it's like not, not that complicated. It's not because it's a cool new app or whatever. It's because it's, uh, it saves them money or you know makes their lives easier. That's pragmatic adoption. So when there's a, a new technology that is cheaper or something like that, then it really um, it leads to mass adoption, and that's how you're going to get kind of exponential growth. Um, and then if you multiply that by country expansion. And you're doing that simultaneous explanation, explanation growth in multiple countries. That's, that's a winner. Um, and what we need is for a venture return is 10x, right? So if you expand, if you're in one country and you expand to 10 countries and each country is exactly the same, you've got your 10x, right? Or, you know, you grow, to, uh, you know, 2x in each country and you go to five countries, that's 10x. So you just need to, to, to be able to grow your markets to 10x. And in Africa, in a place with 54 countries, you can do that. So, and part of the reason I say that is because my first business, so like I said, when I was 25, I did a, an FMCG business, a brand. I thought it was cool to have brands because I grew up in the United States. Yep. And uh, it was called Crystal. Um, I think I've told this. <laughs> and my generation, you know, Crystal Poppin. There's, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> So I named it Cristal in Senegal to this day. You know, Sucre de Cristal is something that is well is known and appreciated. Um, but the thing is, our growth went like this. We were going 25% per month in the first couple of years. And then, boom, it hit flat. Because guess what? There are only so many mom and pops that you can distribute through. Mm. And so we essentially had saturated, uh, like, you know, 95% coverage of the 20,000, 30,000 mom and pops in Dakar. Um, and so that's our, our, our growth kind of went flat. The only way to get more growth is to go to another country. So when I talk about multi-country, it's based on that. But if I went to, like, let's say, you know, we did start looking at Guinea, which is right next door, and then Mali. And if you, if you do that, basically you're just duplicating your, your, your market size, right? Senegal is about the same size as Mali and about the same size as Guinea. So if you do both of those, then you have three times the size of your market. And your revenues, if they grow, you know, uh, by that amount, then hopefully your value would also follow that. So how, <laughs> this is kind of a broad question, but we kind of talked about, or I talked about the difference between, and I made stereotypical statements <laughs> about the difference between consumption power, let's say in the US and consumption power in, in different countries in Africa. And you pointed out that a lot of this real economy activity is happening in quote unquote informal markets, if you want to use that terminology. So how does the logic change when you're operating in informal markets? I mean, if the scale of opportunity is the same and the consumption power, the characteristics are different, how do you uh, bridge that gap? How do you exploit these opportunities in informal markets or that come from informal markets? 
So I actually want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, uh, Samuel Alameyu from uh, from Ethiopia. I met him, um, you know, actually in Senegal, he came through. He had done some, uh, he was an investor at Greylock. And then he returned to Ethiopia to launch a waste energy plant. Um, and so, um, you know, that did, you know, it's interesting because you know, he, he, he says the story about his fundraising journey. So he tried to raise 10 million, was not able to raise 10 million. Tried to raise 30 million, wasn't able to make a return. Finally, he raised 90 million. You know, that's how some of the investors think. They want like the private equity guys, they want to write big checks. And so he's got, uh, you know, the, the largest waste energy plant in, in Addis Ababa, converting waste to electricity, um, which is cool. But he said that, well, something interesting. So he actually was invited to speak at, I think it was a Berkeley conference, um, the Africa Business Conference. And um, Basically, he said that a lot of innovation in Africa has been toward affordability. Mm. And I thought that was deep because guess what? Who, who doesn't like affordability? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I want me some affordability, you know? So, um, so he said that a lot of the innovation in Africa has been around for affordability, which enables the mass markets to adopt. So, you know, example is, um, you know, in India, you have this kind of, you know, Revlon making shampoos that are like this big, that, that's good enough for one usage. The sachet um, model, our yeah. business model when I was doing FMG was also about single usage kind of products, which enable things to be affordable given people's um, income flows. So people don't always, in the formal markets, they don't get paid at the end of the month. They, they make money every day. And so they have a little bit of money to, to spend it. So the, the products and services that have worked have accommodated those modes of income. And so affordability, guess what? That's not a bad thing anywhere. And, you know, we have this concept of leapfrogging. We made up a, a kind of a, a pretend word called frog leaping, which is the opposite, <laughs> which is where you get innovations from the uh, emerging markets, developing world, and they come back to the United States right. or they come back to the Western markets. Uh, best example, I think, is, uh, is um, a competitor to Uber called Lyft, mm-hmm. um, which initially was called Zimride because of Zimbabwe, where the founders got the idea of mm. putting a bunch of people in the taxi. No kidding. <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, that this is, a, you know, there's a taxi, uh, they call it um, Kalando in Senegal, which is like an informal taxi. And then, you know, five people jam into it. And guess what? It makes it cheaper. It makes it more, more affordable. And that's what led to essentially Uber's business model. Yeah, you should probably, I mean, I shouldn't tell you what you should write. It's probably also on your website, but I think some of these, um, some of this etymology stuff, right? Kind of Mm. understanding where these business models come from in the history is really important. And I think a lot of us don't know it. So when you drop these, these nuggets of, well, this was before this and Wei was a a fast follower. Some of us are like, whoa, we, we weren't aware. (laughs) (laughs) We weren't aware of of that history. And it's really important to be, um, uh, aware of that history. So thank you for sharing that. But you did mention cash money. So your friend tried to raise 10, 20, 30, raise 90 because money talks. And you'd also sort of mention again, size of francophone market. So let's talk about the capital. So obviously, there's starting to be some attention brought to the Umoa region. But thinking beyond Senegal, from your perspective, how would you characterize the flow of capital into the Umoa region? Where the the real opportunities, the hot spots, deal distribution. Just what is your take on the the characteristics of the capital coming into the region at the moment? Well, I think first of all, I mean, in the world of technology startups and VC, um, it's it's mostly about talent and not necessarily only market size. I mean, uh, 
frankly, most African countries have a very healthy global diaspora. Uh, and Senegal in particular has a very pronounced global direct diaspora in addition to excellent local universities. So I was actually talking to um, Ime Archibong from, who's a senior VP at uh, Facebook um, from Nigeria. And uh, you know we, we talked about the same thing. And I said, listen, Senegal had excellent universities. So people um, from the Yomoa, from the Francophone region, come to Senegal. So it's actually interesting uh, for the, in the med school, uh, in the uh, University of, uh, of Sheikh Hamdan Job, the University of Dakar, there's a substantial population of Moroccans who have come in to, um, to go to school um, at, uh, in Dakar. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the schools are great, are good. Um, my father, for instance, he has a PhD. And this is, you know, in the, I don't know, 60s, 70s or whatever. Um, so there's, you know, there's, you go to Nigeria, you have people with three PhDs or whatever. <laughs> so this is not like new, right? So I think that a lot of times the, uh, the capital does flow to the, the people that have a pedigree and that have uh, demonstrated, um, gained experience either uh, globally or locally or just, and sometimes it goes to people that are just good. We don't necessarily have the pedigree. They just have, they just have the skill set. So I think that Senegal does, and if you think about the impact um, around the world and you have Senegalese leadership, you know, you think about Aisha Evans-Sar, who was the CEO of Zooks before Amazon bought it for a billion dollars, self-driving car company. You know, there's uh, Tijan Cham, uh, you know, even though he's Ivorian, Cham is actually a Senegalese name. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, he's, uh, he's also, you know, CEO, global CEOs. So we have a, a very high, uh, great skill set. So when I look at investing in Senegal, actually, I'm trying to develop this as a, as a thing. So I look at uh, the, the extreme quality of founders. We've invested in one uh, who has a guy who has a PhD from RPI and did a postdoc at MIT. So that's, that's one thing. I also think that it's not only about, um, it's not, uh, it's not only about market size. It's also about things like the peace dividend, the peace dividend, mm. again, peace, peace has value and people, investors have been ignoring it as though it doesn't and peace and stability has value. Senegal hmm. has been, has shown itself to be a peaceful place, never had a coup d'etat, never had any political violence and has had a uh, you know, peaceful democratic turnover since, um, you know, since independence. And that's, that's a, a big differentiator. It's not all about market size. But you know, I think uh, in, in reality, this notion of we have only four places in Africa that we can invest is, okay, maybe it's the uh, starting point, but in, in no way can it be the, the, the stopping point. You know, I think there is, um, there is starting to get some uh, kind of frothiness in valuations and some of, uh, some of the the major, you know, uh, tech uh, economies in Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya, valuations are high. And that's typical of when you have an influx of investors in any place, the valuations start to go up right. and then the returns start to go down. So what you have to do is to go further afield. Um, and that's why Silicon Valley investors are investing in Africa because the, <laughs> you want to talk about frothiness, it's extremely froth- it was extremely frothy in Silicon Valley. They go to Africa to get their real returns. So... I don't know if I've answered your question, but uh, yeah. No, definitely. Um, So again, you raised some really interesting points about, let's call them value creators or value markers in in these markets. So you mentioned the peace dividend, which I've literally never heard anyone mention before, which is a little odd when you you think about it. Um, I mean, can I just expand on on that? So when I- Please, go ahead. It was 2001. Unfortunately, it coincided with um, kind of um, 
it's almost a civil war in Cote d'Ivoire. Mm. I wouldn't call it civil war, but it was, um, you know, Gbagbo just trying to hang on to power and uh, it kind of deteriorated. And there was a war. And those things destroy value. If you don't think it destroys value, people blowing up buildings is, <laughs> right? So that's that's something that, um, and then now they're rebounding. Fortunately, um, you know, they got back on the right track. But, you know, political disturbances do have cost, substantial cost. Um, so that's that's where that, I kind of get that from. And actually, Senegal has historically benefited in some bizarre way from troubles elsewhere. So, uh, you know, when there was a coup d'etat, and every time there's a coup d'etat in Mali, unfortunately, it's more frequent than, than it should be. People leave Mali and they come to Senegal. Like, they live to come to, to live here. And same thing happened uh, in, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. People left Abidjan and, and kind of set up shop in, in Senegal. Um, and that's, I wouldn't want to, um, you know, cast aspersions on other countries or to say that, you know, there's some sort of a superiority, but I do recognize the importance of peace and the importance of, uh, you know, uh, the ability to, to forecast. I mean, that's, that's, that's real value. No, but it's interesting because at least when I've had sort of general conversations about the riskiness of venture opportunities, there's kind of like this list that gets rattled off in terms of, you know, currency, uh, devaluation, inflation, political stability. But it's very rare that that political stability one gets broken out into what that actually means and what the effects on the ground are when yeah. you don't have it. And, and there's a way in which it's a macro conversation about GDP and political stability and currency devaluation writ large, as opposed to what are the specific characteristics in this market? How well do you know them? And is your perception matching reality? Uh, you can make a probably a loosely framed argument that in Africa generally, you know, the math isn't mathing. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I totally agree. I think there's, um, there's, uh, like I said, we, we've been consistently underestimating the potential of African markets. Um, and that's based in the perception that could have some historical uh, reasons um, that it's, it's not worth it. And I think we just need to kind of, there's enough proof points at this point that people just don't fully understand the, the potential. I mean, I think Achaleke's book, you know, the I think it's African Business Revolution, and he asked the question, you know, how many like you know billion dollar companies are there in Africa? And people always get it wrong. Right. And there's like five hundred. Um, and so there, and you know, you talk about the Mercator projection, the map. Yeah, exactly. Google, Google Maps underestimates the size of it's not it's like a it's a distortion. It's a distorted view of Africa. And that's, I mean, I guarantee you from a U.S. perspective, they have a very warped understanding. It takes the year of the return to get people to come and be like, oh, this is, this is actually pretty nice. Like Skybar, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like this is cool and beautiful and people are nice and food is great. So I've seen that. Um, I mean, I think Maya from Aggressive has done a, a huge heavy lift and getting people to actually set foot, investors. Right. Once the investors set foot, they're like, oh, this is the reality of Africa, and it's not that bad. And actually, there's, you can see opportunities. You can just, like, there's everywhere opportunities. And so I think that, yeah, let's take that first trip to Africa. As soon as you haven't, as long as you haven't been there, uh, you're going to have difficulty accepting the, the possibility. Let's lean into that to wrap it up here. So in the interest of disabusing people, of their ill-conceived assumptions and bringing perception closer to reality. I'm going to give you two options, basically. So 
One, you can introduce or re-emphasize a stereotype about doing business in Yuma or, or in Africa generally that's true, but you wish it weren't. Or you can dispel a pre-existing false stereotype. This is going to be easy for me. So, you know, I spent uh, a couple of years in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area just to kind of like, you know, build some connectivity and kind of understand. That was part of my bucket list. I told you when I was 20, 25, I thought I was living in Silicon Valley when I was in Dakar, Senegal. So 2017, I went there for like three years. And when I was there, I actually was confronted by the challenges with diversity that they have. And in Silicon Valley, you have 1.8% Black people working in those, in you know, the top 200 companies. And the response that they give you is pipeline. I don't have a pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you can see your reaction. And that's a false uh, assessment. <laughs> Because guess what? They didn't, they didn't go to, to Howard. They didn't go to Spelman. They didn't go to, you know, Clark Atlanta to go recruit those people. So there's no problem with pipeline. It's just a problem of, of, uh, of on their end. You know what I mean? They're bad. So that's to say that, you know, in Africa, they're, they're struggling with similar um, gaps in perception. If I'm understanding uh, your question, uh, I think it's really about it's overcoming the stereotype that have plagued Africa for a long time. And, you know, in some way, the onus is on, on us um, as, you know, members of this diaspora to change perceptions. And uh, I was at a conference uh, in Accra recently, um, and uh, Kojo Anan, who organized the conference, he made a, a comment about the importance of African soft power. And he says mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, Afrobeats has completely changed people's impression of Nigeria. <laughs> That's just Afrobeats. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now it's a place to be. You know, you got, they, they've kind of recharacterized, um, you know, the, you know it, it, before we used to think about Nigerian scammers. And now we just think about the hustle that, mm. you know, is common throughout global hip hop. And, and that, you know, that soft power actually plays a role. If you've got Drake sitting, singing next to uh, uh, Burner Boy and all that kind of stuff, that's actually a form of power. Um, and so I think we need to do more of that. The year of the return is, is some of that. In Senegal, Sadio Mane. Everywhere I go in the world, I say I'm, I live in Senegal. They're like, "Oh, Sadio Mane. You know, he's the he's a soccer player. Uh, he won the Ballon d'Or." So those types of things are powerful, super powerful. Like um, culture, you know, cultural assets. Africa is extremely rich across the continent, across the fifty-four countries with cultural assets, and you know, even there are entrepreneurs that are they're tapping into that. I think that's that's going to help people to change their perceptions. No, 100%. I mean, sort of not to emphasize the pairing of kind of global pop or, or what have you in Afrobeats, but when you have <laughs> Nigerian artists singing with Ed Sheeran, <laughs> that's maybe one small indicator that Afrobeats uh, has reached escape velocity and, and, and more so. <laughs> so Tijan, this has been absolutely amazing. I want to thank you wholeheartedly for uh, your, your time and your insight today. This was Really, really interesting. I'm sure everyone who listened picked multiple uh, nuggets that they're going to be able to take with them. So thank you so much uh, on behalf yeah. of the Trajectory African for joining us for Don Le Coulisse. For those of you who are listening, I hope you join us again. Um, you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you very much. Thank you.